Well, we want to welcome you here to uh, Reston Bible Church. We're so glad to have you. My name is Jim Sup, and I'm one of our pastors on staff here. Uh, I do have a, one other quick announcement for you that I want you to be aware of, uh, and it really kind of grows out of, thank you, Evan, it really grows out of some of the challenges that we're facing. You know, we have continued struggles in our nation, uh, the conflicts in Kenosha, and we have shootings in other places like Georgetown, South Carolina, it just seems endless, doesn't it? And it's just so tragic. Coming up on September 26th, Franklin Graham is going to be leading a, a prayer walk uh, starting at the Lincoln Memorial at 12 o'clock. And the journey was, it will be about 1.8 miles or so is what they're saying. And uh, our senior leadership really wants to encourage our uh, congregation to get behind this. So please be on the lookout on that. Mark your calendars, uh, September 26th from 12 to 2, starting at the Lincoln Memorial, and we want to pray for what's going on in our nation. So let's pray before we jump into our message for today. God, we thank you that you are aware, you oversee all events in life, and yet, Father, we struggle. Our world is in such conflict. It seems endless. Every time we turn on the news, it's another conflict uh, between police and civilians and uh, rioting and, uh, and, and just random acts of violence that are so bizarre. God, we need you by the power of your Holy Spirit to uh, infuse your peace into our world. And we pray, God, that that the people of God would be agents of peace. So, God, we ask you to help us to be that for your glory today. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, our message today uh, is actually going to kind of align with that whole theme, the whole Uh, issue of what's going on in our world today and some of the challenges that we face. Several weeks ago when I had an opportunity to to be on this stage, I I shared a bit of a story uh, about some, a a journey that I was was privileged to be a part of back in 2010. I want to flesh that out a little bit more as we start today because it's really relevant to where it is that we're going. In 2010, along with uh, seven other pastors, I had the opportunity and the privilege to travel to the, to the nation of Iraq. Uh, most civilians don't get to go there, and most people don't want to go there if they have to go there. And just such unrest, a, a, a nation of just turmoil. And but we were going to the, to the northern part of that nation to host a pastor's conference. We had 60 pastors and Christian leaders from around the nation come to Erbil, the, the capital of Kurdistan, to gather and to pray and to learn and to study God's word. And in that gathering of 60 pastors and, and Christian leaders, I, I met a man by the name of Shakir. Shakir hadn't always been a pastor. In his youth, at the age of 17, he joined a radical Islamic movement He believed as a Sunni Muslim that if he killed Shia Muslims and Christians that he would be blessed by God. He soon rose to become the commander of that radical cell group. And during that time period, one of his disciples had part of their, in their work, in in his work environment, had confiscated some Bibles that a co-worker had had. They destroyed all but one copy of the Bible and they gave it to Shakir so that he could read the Bible and then explain to them all that was wrong about the Bible. 
Well, as you can imagine, as he started to read the Bible, he started to discover all that was right about the Bible. And he began to be troubled in his spirit, and and God began to poke at him. And one night, he fell asleep, and he had a dream. And in this dream, there was this roadway, and along both sides of the roadway, there were these enormous crowds, and all the prophets of old that the Muslims recognized were parading down this road on horseback. They saw, he saw Abraham and he saw Moses and he saw David. And he waited as this parade was going. He, he was waiting for Muhammad to, to pass by and, and he never did. And then there was a man dressed in white, shrouded, who was riding down this roadway on a donkey. He didn't know what that meant at the time, but you and I know what that means. And as he passed by, he said, are you Jesus? And he took the shroud away and he smiled and he said, yes. And he woke up with tears and in a cold sweat. And as he proceeded on this journey, he came to understand his need for forgiveness. And he, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now you understand he started to talk to people as, about Jesus, but, but as a, a commander of a radical Islamic cell group, I mean, you, you don't just like turn in your resignation and you know, kind of roll over your 401k and cash out your vacation. Right? This doesn't work that way. And multiple attempts were made on his life over the years. And one of the things that was so striking about my interaction with him and multiple pastors in that gathering was there's one concept, one theme, one scripture that rose above all others that were a part of every story that we heard. And it was this notion found in Luke chapter six, which is where we're gonna go, also in Matthew chapter five, and it's simply the command to love your enemies. You see, to a radical, that is radical. The notion of loving your enemies finds no place in Islamic theology. And in truth, in the first century when Jesus spoke those words, it wasn't a concept in any faith, any stream of belief. It was truly a radical idea. One of my good friends, Joel Rosenberg, many of you know who he is. He's an author. Uh, He is a world leader in geopolitical uh, issues around the world. He currently lives in Jerusalem. And he says that the command to love your enemies is an amazing strategy for trying to win people to your faith. No one else is using it except us. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. It says, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on your cheek, well, on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Father, indeed, these are radical, radical words. 
And I pray that as we look into them now and we seek to understand not only what they mean, but how it is that we might be able to live them out in your power, that we would live differently in this time in history. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. I believe there is no time in recent history that we are going to need to understand and implement this command than on the days ahead in American history right now. The notion of loving your enemies is indeed radical and it is impossible. It's impossible apart from the strength of Jesus Christ. But when I use the word enemy, I believe that many of us in our modern context, we're easy to go, well, I don't really have any of those, right? Like an enemy is the devil. Okay, I got that. He is my enemy. But enemy is like Hitler or, you know, something of that magnitude. See, most of us, when it comes to that family member that we haven't spoken to in years or that coworker who cheated us out of business or that neighbor with, we, with whom we've had a dispute, we are very, well, we're not very quick to consider them an enemy. That's a yucky word. We don't like that word. And, and I feel like if I have an enemy, it says something about me and I, I don't want to feel that. So I want to first take a a look at the word enemy and the word love, because those are the two key words in this passage. And then we're going to talk about, well, what does this mean? Like, what is Jesus saying about if this is true that I'm to love my enemy? Well, how do I do that? What are are the critical pieces involved in that journey? So I want to start with the word enemy. Enemy simply means this, one who is antagonistic to another or anyone with hostility toward another. It doesn't have to be this extreme element that that, that comes to our minds. Anyone with whom we have difficulty, who has hurt us, who has wounded us, who has done us wrong, fits into the category of enemy. And with that in mind, for many of us, suddenly these names start populating onto the list. And Jesus said, with those people, we are to love them. The word love, of course, is the Greek word agape, and it means unconditionally showing genuine concern for another with disregard to that person's merit or likelihood of reciprocation. Can I say that again? Because it is really, really important. This kind of love, what we are supposed to show to people with whom there is hostility or difficulty, is unconditionally showing genuine concern for them, for anyone, with disregard to that person's merit. It it doesn't matter if they deserve it. That's kind of the point. Or the likelihood that they will ever reciprocate. My expectation of that is irrelevant. You see, Jesus is commanding, and this is a command. It is in the imperative. This is something that we must take seriously, not as a good idea, but as a core part of life. That those who follow him 
are to have a genuine and unconditional concern for those who are hostile toward us with disregard for that person's merit or likelihood of reciprocating at any point in time. Yeah, Jim, I'm really glad I came today. Thanks for being light and fluffy on another sermon today. And you say, okay, I get it. Sounds impossible. It is a command. I want to obey God's commands. I, I want to do what he wants me to do. How do we do that? What does that look like practically? How do we go from conceptual to practical? And Jesus tells us right here in this passage. The first thing he says is this. He said, do good to those who hate you. This is about what you do. This is about how you treat people with whom there may be hostility. Jesus is saying that those who are my true followers will live in such a way that they will unconditionally show positive action toward those, even those who hate us. Romans 12 fleshes this out in a powerful, powerful way. Romans 12, starting at verse 7, 17, excuse me. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't do that. Be careful to do what is right in every, everyone's eyes. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, and it may not, but you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Don't do that. Don't, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord, not you. That's not your job. That's not what I want you to do. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Have you ever felt overcome with the anger that comes from woundedness and hurt and the desire to to have revenge. This idea of heaping burning coals, it's a fascinating ancient image and scholars disagree on exactly what this means. Many believe that in ancient times there was a practice of those who were conquered, those uh, who were defeated, that they would have to be forced to walk through town in humiliation with this container of burning coals on their head. It's hard to know. The image basically here is what Paul is saying is when you respond in kindness to an offense to you, it basically shames the other person as if they are, have heaping, it heaps burning coals on their head like that ancient image. I'm sure from this stage at some point in time, especially in a sermon by Bob Schull, you have heard an illustration about Victor Hugo's 19th century novel Les Miserables. It's one of his favorite stories, and it's one of mine as well. The turning point in this story is when the main character, Jean Valjean, who is a criminal, is taken in by this Catholic priest, but in the middle of the night, he, he steals all of the valuable silver. He assaults the, the priest and takes off, only to be brought back by the police. And in that moment, the, in that doorway, the, the, the doors open and there's the police and there's Jean Valjean and, and then the, the priest says, oh, you forgot these and he hands them these two valuable candlesticks. And in a moment where judgment was deserved, 
he receives grace. An act of kindness toward his enemy. And he heaped, if you will, the burning coals of humiliation on Jean Valjean's head and it is the turning point of his life. You see, you and I live in a world with norms and one of the norms that we have in this world is what's called the norm of reciprocity. It's you do something good for me and I do something good for you. If you don't do something good for me, I shouldn't be expected to do something good for you. You send me a Christmas card, I send you a Christmas card. You uh, take care of my dog while I'm away on vacation, then I'm going to take care of your dog when you're on vacation. You see, in reality, this isn't a bad thing. There's kind of a a corporate sense uh, that, that holds societies together and makes healthy relationships clear and dependable in this norm of reciprocity. Unfortunately, in a fallen world, the opposite is true. If you do something mean to me, well, I feel like maybe I could do something mean to you. There's bumper stickers that used to say, that used to be funny, like, I don't get mad, I get even, or keep honking, I'm reloading, and today, they're no longer funny. Few of us have seen the kind of hatred and hostility in our lifetime that we are right now. And Jesus is saying, We are not to live according to the norm of reciprocity. We are to live according to the norm of initiating love, no matter who the recipient is in our life, our friend or our enemy. The norm of initiating love says that no matter what happens to me, I am going to honor God by loving others the way Jesus loved others. Later on in this chapter, it says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. There's no honor in that. That's the norm of reciprocity. We expect that. That's the way our world lives. Jesus says, no, I have a different norm for those who are following me. It's called the norm of initiating love. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Does Jesus really mean that if someone slaps me in the face, I should turn and let him slap the other cheek? If someone walks up to me and says, hey, give me your coat, should I start to take off my shirt as well? Come on. I mean, what's he talking about here? The world doesn't work like that. See, it's important to understand, and let me ask you this. Well, let me say it this way. When I was a young believer 40 years ago, there was this whole debate about whether Jesus, you know, what was Jesus asking us to do? And we, we, we kind of kicked this around every which way. And then it dawned on me. When's the last time I was slapped in the face and felt like I had a struggle as to whether or not I was going to turn the other cheek? Has it happened to you recently? 
Has it ever happened to you? Has someone ever come up and said, hey, give me your coat that put you in a position to cause you to struggle whether you were going to give them your shirt? Has that happened to you recently? It's never happened to me. Never. So debating back and forth the need to do it is missing the point completely. What Jesus is driving at in a checkbox religion of do's and don'ts in the first century He's talking about the heart. You see, I could get slapped on the cheek and dutifully turn the other cheek, walk away embittered in my heart and miss the whole point. I could be asked for my coat and give it up and strip down half naked and give you the rest and walk away embittered and still miss the point that this is about my heart. Jesus was pushing back against the heartless compliance to a checkbox faith that he faced in the first century that you and I still struggle with today. His primary intent was that my heart would love in an impossible, Jesus-empowered way to love those who are impossible to love in his strength, in his name, for his kingdom. That's the point. And Jesus, by the way, is not talking about some mamby-pamby, boundaryless, doormat existence that allows you to just get run over no matter what. He's not talking about not speaking the truth in love. He's not talking about failing to set boundaries on a rebellious teenager. He's not even talking about failing to alert the authorities when a crime is being committed. He's not talking about that. He's talking about you personally relating to people in love who don't deserve it, who have hurt you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, while we were moving away, he was in hot pursuit of us. He died for us. And in his power, we can live like him. So when that hostile neighbor is out of town, what do you do? Maybe you mow their grass for them. When that coworker who has stolen business from you and something comes up and you go to them and you say, you know what, I really think that this case, this situation, this client is best suited for your skill set and they look at you like, what? Because in Jesus, you can afford to leave it up to him. Let him deal with the revenge and evening the score. Loving your enemies, number one, means doing good to those who hate you. Number two, it means blessing those who curse you. And if the first one meant it was about what we do, the second one is about what we say. Bless comes from the Greek words good and word. It's a good word. It's a good word toward those 
who don't have a good word toward us, perhaps even a curse. The Proverbs are filled with principles about our words. And I gotta tell you, people say things today, especially in social media, that are shocking. Christians who tear other people apart in these posts that are not fit for unbelievers, let alone believers. Proverbs 12, 18 says, reckless words pierce like a sword. Pierces like a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Proverbs 15, 1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever tried the gentle answer route? I hope so. To everybody, but even to those who you consider an enemy. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth in love. In love. It doesn't mean that we're not honest. It doesn't mean that we're not direct. It doesn't mean we don't have feelings. Your enemies come in many shapes and forms. My kids are 15 and 17 now, but when they were five and seven, back, those, back in that day, one of the most popular video games was Lego Star Wars. Does anybody remember this? And my son was a master, even at the age of five, of video games. And in this particular Lego Star Wars game, there were roughly, uh, I believe, 160 levels. You know how this works. You unlock different things. You get new characters and you get new powers and you get all this. And he got, he got about 80 levels conquered. My daughter, who is not a particularly video game savvy person, uh, somehow she decided she wanted to play one day, and she did. And uh, she literally, and tech wizards that we have sought to understand how this happened have no idea. It shouldn't be possible, but she wiped out all 80 levels of his 160 levels. Wiped it out. Starting from scratch until you... To, in, the, in the world of a five-year-old, this is now an enemy. I mean, an enemy. You want to talk about bringing the scriptures to bear in the lives of your children? I'm serious about this in a five-year-old world. But you know, in 23 years of being a pastor in the adult world, I've seen some really, really difficult conflicts in the church. I've seen some horrible, horrible, painful, contentious, angry divorces between two believers that it's not even, again, that that level of hostility isn't fit for unbelievers, let alone believers. Our command to bless others, is it impossible? (laughs) Yes. In the power of Jesus, it's what we're called to live. Number one, we are told in this passage that we are to do good to those who hate us. We are to bless those who curse us. And number three, we are to pray for those who mistreat, who mistreat us. When you think about those who have hurt you, when you think about those who have, you have had, had difficulties with, with whom you are antagonistic or they are antagonistic to you, and you think about the prayers that you pray, Well, number one, do you pray? And then number two, when you pray, what do you pray exactly? I mean, do you 
immediately go to the imprecatory psalms to call down judgment upon them. And that's what my heart wants to do. Lord, I pray financial ruin. Like, like what do I pray? You know, one of the most powerful scenes in all the Bible is Jesus on the cross, right? It's the culmination. This whole moment of the crucifixion and the resurrection are the apex of the entire Bible. I don't know why God chose to record the seven things that Jesus said from the cross that he did. I'm, I, I, I'm not convinced that there weren't other things that he said. But the things that God chose to record in the Bible, you, you got to think that whatever Jesus is saying from the cross, that's important. And after all that Jesus had been through, the beatings within an inch of his life, and then the crucifixion being nailed to a cross. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you owe it to yourself to, to watch it. Suck it up and do it. It is painful. It is awful. But I believe it gives a pretty clear picture of what really happened. And, and after that, after that, while those who did it were still jeering at him, He prayed this in Luke 23. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. What is that? How? After all of that, how? With his dying breath, he asked the Father to forgive those who did all of this to him. Most of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the ministry of Prison Fellowship, founded by Chuck Colson. Their headquarters is right here in Lansdowne, just down the road. Prison Fellowship publishes a, a newsletter called Jubilee. And years ago, I was reading in the Jubilee newsletter about the story, the life of a woman named Lorraine Reed. It was a January afternoon when Lorraine's 16-year-old daughter, Stacy, arrived home from school on a very, very normal day, or so it seemed. Stacy came into the house only to find that there was an intruder who brutally attacked her and killed her. About 15 minutes later, their 14-year-old daughter, Christy, arrived home, who was also brutally beaten and yet miraculously survived. The article depicts how the man went on to be found guilty and sent to death row here in Virginia. Close to a decade later, God started to poke at Lorraine's heart. He started saying things to her, if you will, in, in, in her heart's, uh, you know, kind of whispering to her in, internally. Lorraine, can you forgive a murderer? No, God, how can you ask me to forgive such a heinous crime against my daughters? The article quotes her as saying this about God's profound answer. He said, I sent my son Jesus to live among you, to teach you. He was sinless, yet he carried the sins of the world on his shoulders. He was flogged, tormented, mocked, and crucified on the cross while I watched. My love 
is unconditional. Trust me. The man was executed in March of 2010. But prior to that, Lorraine was given the opportunity to interact with him. He apologized for his crimes. He asked for her forgiveness. And she forgave him. He also learned, she also learned that he had accepted Christ while he was on death row. Today, Lorraine goes into prisons on a regular basis to minister to criminals. I don't know about you, but that's not the outcome that I pray for people who have offended me, people who I consider enemies, who have done far less than what she experienced. And you say, Jim, this is impossible. It's outrageous, and you are right. It is outrageous that God would look at those who follow him and say, this is how I want you to live, but he does. He says to love your enemies, and you do that by doing good to those who hate you, that you bless those who curse you, that you pray for those who mistreat you. And then he says this, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. And I submit to you that you, that I, are no more like Jesus at any other time than when we live like this, this impossible command by his strength and by his power. Remember that an enemy is anyone who is antagonistic toward us, anyone who is hostile toward us for any reason. That is an enemy. And my call, the call from my God is to do good to them, to bless them and to pray for them and leave the rest to him. We are never more like Jesus than when we struggle to respond to others in life like he did. As I move through midlife, and with this I'll close, I feel like for years I just was trying to mind my own business, and then one day I woke up and I said to myself, how have I ended up with so many enemies? How have I found myself in a place where I've been treated so poorly or or hurt in this way and that way? And one of the greatest challenges in preaching is when God calls you to preach a message that you need as much as anyone else. And I don't know where you are today with the people who are on your perhaps growing enemies list as you consider today's discussion. But I have a list and it isn't short. And I believe that as we move into the future as a people in our nation and all that's going on, that the enemies of the church and the enemies personally and the the growing environment of hostility in our world we may end up with a lot more enemies than we ever thought. And I believe we have an opportunity, a challenge to live 
in a way that is humanly impossible, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God to love our enemies. Perhaps one of the most defining elements of what it means to be a believer in Jesus over against any other faith in the world. And will you take the challenge today? Will you pray about those in your life and what this means for your next step with them? And if you are with us today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you haven't asked Jesus to be your savior, he hasn't relieved you, if you will, of your sin and given you his imputed righteousness to you because of his finished work on the cross, there is no power to love your enemies. For only those who have embraced Jesus, accepted his payment for sin, have the capacity in his strength to be able to do this impossible task of loving our enemies for the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in Christ we have the perfect example of everything we've ever been commanded to do or will be commanded to do. We have the example of Jesus who did it. And I pray, Lord God, that we would take seriously the need to live out the commands of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would take seriously what it means to bless those, to do good to those, to pray for those who have brought harm to us. That we might be a reflection of Jesus Christ and as we move forward into the future in a world that is not getting, an, it's not getting easier, God, I pray that you would be blessed and that you would bless us, empower us. May we live for you in this way. God, may you be honored and may we hear well done at the end of it all. For your honor and glory, we pray in your great name. Amen.